Well, hi, my name's Katrina. I'm part of the pastoral team here at New Hope, and it's a privilege for me to serve you um, tonight. Well, our Bible reading this evening comes from the book of Psalms. Now, usually, if you've been here a couple of times, you know we usually start off with the Bible reading, but tonight I want to finish with the Bible reading, just in case you're a little bit anxious that I might have forgotten something. As you know, the book of Psalms is actually a songbook. It's actually a book of lyrics. When I was in high school, if you really liked someone, you'd make them a mixtape. All the old people, did you ever do that? If you don't know what a mixtape is, it's kind of like a Spotify list, but different. Because actually, creating a mixtape takes an awful lot of effort. You've got to sit in your bedroom for hours on end and listen to the radio and wait for just the right moment when the song that you want to record comes on. You've got to press the, the, the play and record button. Do you remember that? At exactly the right time to capture it. And then you've got to spend a couple of hours afterwards writing out all the song names and the artist names and then slip that into the little plastic cover at the back. And you've got to turn all of the dots on the letter I into love hearts so that the boy you're going to give the mixtape to gets the message. Or, or maybe that was just me. I don't know. Anyway, I figure that the book of Psalms is actually like one epically large communal mixtape. Like one night after Sunday night church service, all the Israelites got together and decided which songs were going to be in and which songs were going to be out. They chose 150 songs, which either tells you that they really, really loved music, or that it's really, really hard for the people of God to agree on the top 20. For us today, we don't hear the Psalms as songs, do we? For us, the experience of reading the Psalms is kind of more like reading a transcript, a transcript of a conversation between the psalmist and God. The Psalms are these wonderfully human cries from the heart, aren't they? And they're full of all kinds of human emotion. Whatever human emotion you can name, you're gonna find it in the Psalms. There's love and then loneliness. There's regret and hope. There's anger and shame and desire and delight. All kinds of emotion. And what I love about the Psalms is that they're so not polite. It's full-on, red-hot emotion. Just like the songs on the mixtape I used to make, I reckon the Psalms are actually pretty intense. One of the most famous categorizations of the Psalms is offered to us by a theologian called Walter Brueggemann. He divided the Psalms into three movements. He called them orientation, disorientation, and re orientation. It's kind of like a cycle. The Psalms of orientation are those moments when you feel like everything's working in your life. Everything's lining up and the path ahead is clear. The Psalms of disorientation are when life's kind of falling apart and you're asking the question, oh my goodness, what on earth just happened? A relationship fails, we fall ill, there's the death of our dreams, or the death of a loved one, or we lose our job. The Psalms of reorientation describe those moments when something happens, when somehow this newness breaks forth into our lives and we get a new perspective within ourselves on our circumstances, or our circumstances change. 
and we embrace this extraordinary new reality. The majority of the Psalms are Psalms of disorientation. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that we spend so much of our lives buffeted by the harsh winds of reality, thrown for six by random acts of tragedy and the consequences of others and our own brokenness. And while we're in this place of disorientation, this profound kind of tension emerges in, it, in us. It's a tension between the reality of our circumstances on one hand and the promises of God on the other. It's a tension caused between the difference between what we're actually experiencing in our lives and what we believe we could or should be experiencing on the basis of who God is. And one of the temptations we face in the midst of this tension is that we just want it to go away, to make the tension go away. At first, we feel kind of awkward when God doesn't answer our prayers like immediately. And then over time, when we discern no movement, when there is no discernible answer or change, we're kind of prone to fall into this profound discouragement. And our response sometimes is just to kind of quietly, gradually lower our expectations, like we're trying to let God off the hook. We say to ourselves, well, gee, maybe God's words were for old people back then and just maybe they don't apply. Or maybe things have changed. Maybe God's gone out of the intervention business. Or maybe it's me, maybe I'm just overreacting and God's really busy and the stuff in my life just doesn't kind of get on his radar. Or maybe the problem is that my faith isn't strong enough. Perhaps the reality is that I'm not good enough. And so we lower our expectations and we try studiously to avoid all of those parts of the Bible that promise something better than the reality that we wake up to on a daily basis. Another way we seek to make this awkward tension go away is sometimes we just go into denial. I remember a woman called Helen. She had a son who was experiencing a moment of profound mental unwellness, brought on by his long-term addiction to drugs. Helen found a medical facility for her son and she was so grateful for the caring, amazing quality care that he experienced there. She told me that, well, it's so good, he's just, he's gonna be out in a week. I know he's gonna be out in a week. A few weeks into her son's treatment, I visited Helen at home where she said to me, look, everything's gonna be fine, God is going to completely heal my son. Helen was this wonderful, gregarious kind of woman who had lots of friends and she had listed everyone she knew to pray for her son. And after many months in hospital, her son had still not recovered in the way that Helen had hoped that he would. And she struggled so hard to come to terms with this new reality in his life. Helen told me that she felt so angry and so completely abandoned by God. She said that she couldn't pray. This woman that I'd known as this amazing prayer warrior simply just couldn't bring herself to pray. Because in the midst of her disorientation, 
Helen was struggling to admit that everything wasn't okay, that everything wasn't going to be okay. To my amazement, Helen was able to perpetuate her denial for way longer than I thought was humanly possible. And I noticed just how much hurt it caused her in her relationship with her son, in her relationship with her family, and in her own life. We need the Psalms of disorientation. We need a place to express our anger and our hurt and our grief and our frustration. We need a safe place to yell at God. Praying the Psalms of disorientation, they help us to move past this brittle kind of plastic fake faith, and they invite us into a place of deep emotional authenticity with God, where we tell God exactly how it is, because he already knows, right? Praying the psalm of disorientation draws our attention to the reality that nobody's life goes smoothly, that even for the people of faith who love God, they will enter into deep pain and deep suffering. So lowering our expectations or denying the reality of our circumstances, look, I think they're really understandable human responses to the enormous tension that we feel by our challenging circumstances. But tonight, I simply want to point out that you will never find any of these strategies in the Psalms. That the Psalmist neither plays down the painful reality of their circumstances nor do they lower their expectations of God. Instead, what you see in the Psalms is that when this tension emerges, they do precisely what their mother told them not to do, which is to complain, and to complain awfully loudly and awfully long. How long, O God, says the Psalmist, will you forsake me forever? For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you cast me off? Why must I walk so mournfully day by day? See, far from making this tension go away, the psalmist actually dials up the tension, complaining about it. Oh my God, I cry all day, but you don't answer. I cry all night, but I find no rest. And they go back and forth between the reality of the human situation they're facing and the promises of God saying, this thing is happening to me, God. My enemies are triumphing over me. Where is the saving power that you promised? You said that you'd shelter me underneath your rock, God, so come on, get sheltering. Like evil, corrupt people are running amok in my life, and you're supposed to be a God of justice, so for goodness sake, bring your justice already. And far from being an act of disloyalty, This kind of complaining is actually an act of faith because it takes seriously God's character. It takes seriously God's sovereignty. It takes seriously God's saving plan and it says, I am not letting that go. I'm not letting you go, God, or the life that I know you long to bring or the fullness that Jesus promised me, and I will complain all day and all night until something changes and I see your promises become a reality in my life. Because that's what faith does. Faith keeps pushing, faith keeps 
asking for more. Faith plants itself in the territory of God and it says, okay, God, I'm ready. Bring it. The earth is yours and all who are in it, so you bring your life here, God. You breathe life back into me. Not only is this complaining an act of faith, actually it's the source of joy. Because after you've been banging your fist on the ground so, lo so long and so hard, complaining your heart out to God, and then something releases, something shifts in you or in your circumstances, my goodness, the joy, like the jubilation, like all that complaining has built the tension and the pressure until it's so high that when it gets released, it's like being struck full in the chest by the wonder of God. That moment when the parallel lines of our life and God's life suddenly intersect with one another and this extraordinary joy breaks forth. And that connection, it feels like for a moment we glimpse eternity. It feels like we're being overwhelmed by love. It feels like suddenly we've gotten a new pair of eyes. And this is a moment that not even the poetry of the psalmist can fully express as our eyes fill with tears. That's joy. And this joy finds its completion in a tidal wave of praise. You see, praise liberates our joy. Praise enables us to experience this wonder of connection with God over and over and over again. However, have you ever noticed in your own life how joy just spontaneously overflows into praise? That we can't help but praise the things that give us joy, that connect us to this reality outside of ourselves. I mean, have you ever sat with someone who's just come back from a holiday that they really loved and they show you every single photograph they took on their phone? Or have you ever spoken to a grandparent, um, a first-time grandparent in the week after the birth of their child? Or perhaps you had coffee with one of your friends and they've just fallen in love with someone and they talk about that person until your ears are literally bleeding. <laughs> we do it with everything, don't we? Be it books or movies or restaurants or food or experiences or people, if it brings us joy, we just can't help but praising it and talking about it. Ask a person the right question, I think. Ask them a question on the right topic and you will just unleash this waterfall of praise. We delight to praise what brings us joy because praising completes our joy. Our joy just isn't complete until we've shared it. As you know, Christianity is uniquely a religion of joy. Joy is second only to love in Paul's list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. And you might remember that in Luke 15, in the three parables of the lost, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, we get this amazing picture of God's exuberant joy as the things that are lost become found. And at the center of this joy is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of his spirit that makes a way for us to experience this connection of joy with God all the time. Christian people like you and me who tend to wax lyrical about our relationship with God. But what are we really saying? When you talk about having a relationship with God, how do you really understand that? 
If you had to choose a metaphor that describes it, what would you choose? Is it like a monarch and their subjects? Is it like a boss and their workers? A parent and a child? Is it like two friends or intimate partners? And in your relationship with God, when you talk to God, what does it actually sound like? Do you express the full range of human emotions that you have, everything from joy to the depths of despair? Or does your conversation with God sound pretty much like a monotone, like just one note of flat emotion, bland sentences? And when you talk to God, I'm sure that you think that God's listening, but do you actually have any sense that God is being impacted by the words that you pray? Or do you think that your prayers just kind of slide off God's ears like Teflon? The psalmist is able to bring the joy because the psalmist knows that in every relationship of any depth of any reality, there's always tension. Because we don't see the things the same way. Because we hold different priorities. Because as much as we try to, we don't always understand one another and we certainly don't always understand God. And in the midst of this tension that we feel, the psalmists invite us to practice two kinds of speech, two kinds of faithful ways of attending to our relationship. On one hand, it's lamentful complaining, and on the other, it's joyful praise. Because these two ways of speaking both allow us to be honest about the reality of our lives, and at the same time holding on to the promises and the person of God and his goodness. What I want you to know tonight is that there is no joy to be found in the Lord if you're just kind of wearing some tight smile all the time, when underneath the reality is there's this seething cauldron of disappointment and anger and fear. There is no joy in the Lord unless you do what the psalmist has done and complain loud and long each morning, laying the pieces of your life out on the altar of God, no matter how many pieces your life is in. And you need to say to God each and every morning, I want the wholeness that you promised God. I want the fullness that you say you're here to bring, I want the justice, I want the peace, I want all of who you are, and I want all of who I can be in you to come. So as you and I sit here in the inevitable tension in our lives between our human situations and the promises of God, I want to encourage you that lamentful complaining is actually a way of aligning yourself with God of agreeing with God that you too want the things, want the goodness that God longs to bring. And as the waves of tension hit you this week, I want to encourage you that whatever's going on, this is not God's final word in your life or God's final word over this world. And when you experience those moments when something suddenly shifts, when your perspective change or your circumstances change, I want to encourage you to give yourself over to joy, to let your praise find its completeness in joy. 
As the worship teams come uh, to lead us as we close our service, I want to invite you to receive this psalm. It's actually um, a psalm mixtape. I kind of did a bit of a mashup of the psalms. It's a little bit of Psalm 96 with a smattering of Psalm 23. And I'm really delighted to invite Kendall, who's going to perform it for us now. suffocating down here. Can't you see these burdens I'm carrying are squeezing the life out of me? And I don't know why, Lord. When there seems to be enough breath for tyrants, enough life for liars, enough puff to float the schemes of graft and greed that keep the poor down and the powerful up. Are you all puffed out, God? Is there really no breath left for me? Well, I'm going to use these last three breaths to cry out to you, God. I'm lost and I need your help. My eyes are unfocused. I can't see the way in front of me. I can't even see you. You're with me. Show up, please. I've lost hope. out to you, Lord, my only hiding place. You're all I have, my last chance to help. That's why I came here tonight. I've come into this house, your sanctuary, your sanctuary in search of you, the living God who dwells with us, to sit at your feet, to lay down my burdens, to be free from the things that bind, and to marvel marvel at the abundance of your life, the source of all things, to marvel at the wellspring of your imagination, the beauty in all things, to marvel at the hope we find in you. In the depths of my heart, I truly know that you, God, are my shield. You take me and surround me with yourself. You cover me with your promise of love and mercy. I can't help but worship you. So let the skies ring for joy. Let the earth join in chorus. Let the oceans thunder and fields echo ecstatic praise. Let, until every swaying tree in every forest joins in, lifting up the songs of joyous praise to you, God. May we keep shouting joy forever. Tonight I'll lie down and sleep like a baby. And tomorrow I'll wake in your safety. For you surround me with your even though dark powers prowl at me, I will not be afraid, for I know you are with me. 